Welcome to the Forthright Women podcast, where we're dedicated to revealing what keeps women leaders successful and sane. We address challenges like being an executive mom, enabling more women to rise, and fueling our own minds, bodies, and spirits. These conversations are unapologetically real, insightful, and from forthright women themselves. Let's do it. Hello, forthright women. This episode you're about to hear originally aired on our other podcast, Marketing Smarts. We thought this community would appreciate it too, as it contains rich and relevant insights to help keep all of you female leaders successful and sane. So let's get to it. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about how to disagree without being contentious. So this is at the root of what we call respectful debate, which we talk about a ton. And frankly, we encourage respectful debate because of its ability to pull different point of views, different expertise, different beliefs, all those passion areas. This diversity of thought is critical for leaders to really make good decisions. But what gets in the way of respectful debate are usually feelings, feelings of anxiety, mm-hmm. discomfort, fear, worry that comes with disagreement or more accurately put, the energy around disagreement, which is why we tend to be really conflict avoidant. Yeah, which means that many leaders will tend to shut down respectful debate and then schedule some silly tone deaf thing like a team building the next week to help uh-huh. everyone quote unquote get along better. Yep. I'm going to say something a bit controversial here, but we believe politeness is actually the enemy of productivity, meaning failure to bring diversity of thought or failure to question the status quo or failure to clarify expectations not being met or when they're not clear can poison relationships and actually over time impede progress. Right. But there is an art to respectful debate. And at the root of it is how to disagree without being contentious which is really what creates a hostile environment that everybody really, really fears. So with that, let's jump into the art of respectful debate, how to disagree without being contentious. So the first point is to take responsibility for your current set of beliefs and assumptions. So one way that debate really turns ugly is when fingers get pointed. 100%. Yes. So the root of this is when someone else didn't do their job And that other person is pointing the finger at them saying, this is what you should have done, or you should have done this, or you missed that, or you didn't do what you were supposed to do. But what this does is it usually puts the other person on the defensive, which then usually turns that back around onto you, which is like, well, you didn't tell me you needed it, or you weren't clear that that this is the kind of quality you wanted. The common theme is you statements. (laughs) You did this, you did this, you did this. The way to counter this, especially if you're having the intent of having a really productive conversation, is to take responsibility for what your current beliefs or assumptions are and pose this as a way in. These statements start with I. Mm-hmm. I was under the assumption that this would be included. I thought that based on the timeline, we'd establish that this would be done by now. I thought that based on the scope, we were going to do this next. The reality of the situation is no matter how hard we try to be crystal clear, there's always room left for interpretation. There's always excuses, some good, some not. There's always different lenses for seeing every situation. The point of this is to realize this by validating your own assumptions versus making someone else wrong. Yeah, and I think one of the big things here is that you need to realize your beliefs and assumptions are not likely the exact same as the other person. In fact, they never are because every person is Mm -hmm. very different. So instead of getting frustrated by what you expected, if you can flip the narrative in your own head and try to give some grace to the other person, assume positive intent, 
and then start the conversation. I think to Anne's point about the I, you know, I expected this I versus the accusatory you were supposed to do this. When you frame it this way, I think it doesn't let the other person off the hook, nor, as you know by now, Anne and I are not built to let anyone off the hook ever. So that's absolutely not what we're saying here. But I think what happens if you take the time to think about their perspective, you can see that things aren't black and white. Our world is not black and white. And so there likely was gray in whatever happened in the situation. Anne and I talk all the time with our clients, with each other, with you know people we coach about how really the root of every problem is a breakdown in communication. And this is one of those situations where I think that happens. You could have thought that you were crystal clear in communicating what your expectations were. And maybe you were, but maybe the other person didn't hear it all or didn't internalize it all or didn't take it the way you wanted, right? So you can start to see how when you think about, oh, well, maybe – when I said this, they thought this or, you know, and not to say you go down a rabbit hole or again, you don't excuse them, but it's more about not getting aggressive right off the bat and posing it or coming from a place of you are wrong and I am right. I think that's all really well said. And I really specifically like the point about making sure the other person or see or hearing it from the fact that the other person has good intentions in realizing that they have their own set of filters, their own set of responsibilities, their own set of criteria by which they're operating from, which may not be the same as yours. And we're going to get to how you you address that here in one of the later points. But all of that being said, when we go out, like you said, from on the defensive, it tends to start the conversation off from a really bad place. And there's only one way to go from there, right? Mm-hmm. So. So I think that's really a really good point. All right. So our next point about the art of respectful debate and how to disagree without being contentious is to know when you're being objective or subjective. Kind of preempted this point. A a little bit. Yes. (laughs) Now, this is a little bit of a complicated mind trick. So stay with me and I'll try to clarify as I go. But as we've preached many times, it's always good to have objective resources and references in order to anchor the conversation, okay? This comes from briefs, processes, protocols, best practices. This allows you to debate the merit of the solution, the POV, the idea versus the way you feel about it. So it allows you to have that lens and that filter. Debates escalate when we try to disguise a subjective conversation as an objective conversation, Mm -hmm. right? What do I mean by this? So many times when we feel a certain way about something, we don't want to admit it. We don't want to say how we feel about it. It doesn't feel like it has enough gravitas. It doesn't feel like it has enough weight. So instead, we try to strengthen our argument by trying to make objective points out of subjective principles. Okay, so let me give you an example of what this looks like. This is one you can all relate to. It's not This one doesn't happen to be true per se, but it, it, it'll exemplify the point. So... My husband asked me where I want to go for dinner, and he suggests his favorite Mexican restaurant, which also happens to be owned by a friend of his, right? I really don't like this restaurant at all, but I don't want to say that because it may hurt his feelings or it may cause some disagreement between him and his friend. So instead, I start providing points as to why going to this restaurant isn't a good idea. So I might say, well, you know, we just had Mexican the other night, or maybe it gets really busy on Saturday nights and we'll have to wait and I'm very hungry. All feel like legitimate points on the surface, but what they're disguising is my feeling about the situation that I really just don't want to (laughs) go, right? 
So now we do this at work too when we don't really have a good reason for something, but we feel a certain way about it. We call this running an agenda. And if the other person doesn't realize that that's what's going on, when this conversation starts becoming heated, the person who feels a certain way about the situation starts feeling like they're being personally attacked for their thoughts and their points of view, even though the other person may not realize that it's a feeling that they are expressing versus an objective point of view based on data or based on this, the, the sources that I was talking about earlier. So it's a very interesting nuance. The way you kind of get through it, if you're not quite sure, sometimes we can pull out people running agendas from a mile away, right? But if you don't know, the best thing to do is just to ask. Mm-hmm. And it may seem like a really awkward question to ask, but it's better than kind of spiraling down into this abyss of like contentious disagreement over somebody's feelings that you didn't even know they had. So you'd simply just say, hey, is this something that you're feeling? Is this, you know, do you have this emotional reaction to this? Is this something you have some substantiation for? Or is this something that you're seeing based on some level of data or some level of cumulative experience or some other reference or some other data point? So just to kind of anchor yourself on what kind of conversation you're having, either could be valid, but you just want to make sure that as you're having this discussion, you're being very cognizant about whether or not you're debating facts or whether or not you're debating feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it is such a good point. And when I think about this one, I think what happens is, you know, Anne, you mentioned wanting to protect people's feelings. And we talked about how politeness can be the breakdown of being able to have respectful debate, right? And so I think that when we don't speak from the authenticity or the underlying root of why we are reacting the way we are, the other person tends to sense it on some level. Right. Right. For those of us that are highly intuitive, it's pretty obvious. For those of us that are not, it just feels a little uncomfortable. Right. And I think that's where the breakdown starts to happen here. And I think that when you can do it in that more objective place or learn to capture that as a best practice, you can build almost like muscle memory to make it work. I was thinking about the way that Anne and I interact with each other. And we had this interaction yesterday that just struck me as when we start to sense something within the other person and we go to approach it with each other. So this is like a simple example, right? We're writing an article series. Mm-hmm. Anne's been owning it. I've been supporting it. Where it got tricky is one of the people coming in was someone I reached out to. One of my triggers is somebody asked me for help. We all know this. This could be a whole episode in and of itself. I feel compelled <laughs> to jump right in and save them from whatever is happening, right? It's a little bit of a problem with me. But anyway, so I passed on the article content to Anne, but it was stuck in my head that this person had asked for help, right? From me. Mm-hmm. Or that's the way I was thinking about it. And so I had offered in our, one of our, you know, meetings discussions about the work to go ahead and take a first pass at things, to which Anne was like, okay, but then we never really resolved it, right? So yeah. then, rightly so, Anne came back and said, hey, we got to get on this. Are you going to do this or what should I do? And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to add value, but this person asked me for help. I don't know if I should jump in there. Will it be redundant? But this person asked me for help. And so I kind of did this thing in my head. And I went back and I said, look, I'm not trying to get out of it, but maybe it's not a good idea for me to jump in. To which Anne responded, 
Well, I felt like when you had that response, I was you thought I was cutting you out of the process. I like doing this work. And I was like, oh, okay, I can be absolved of the whole thing, mm -hmm. right? But my feelings were getting in the way of my response in an objective way to the assignment, right? Whereas if I had taken myself out, and then I think the back and forth was good because it was like I didn't want Anne to think I was – being like, oh, I said I would help, but actually I'm going to opt out. See you later. Right. Versus you being like, oh, shit, does she feel like I'm cutting her out of the process? We were able to resolve it and get to that more objective place again. Yeah, I think that's a really good example because a lot of the conversations that people have either personally or in the workplace are like that, right? It's yeah. like, I really want to do this work. I used to have that feeling all the time and I want to own that work, but sometimes – I wouldn't just state that because I'd be like, well, if I'd state that, then somebody's going to feel left out and they're going to feel like I'm just going to take it and run with it. I'm not going to get any input. And I feel like we feel this way a lot that we have to share everything. But instead, if we just kind of acknowledge how we feel about it, express how we feel about it, state sometimes what our fear is in taking it away. Like, like I said, I was like, well, I just don't want her to feel like I'm just owning it and she doesn't have a role to play if she wants a role to play. Those conversations start building a level of understanding that then almost like preempts any kind of debate that you would have to have mm -hmm. because you start to reveal feelings which are really hard to interpret, especially if you're going over Slack, which is what we were doing yep. we were in person. Yep. So I couldn't see your face and see like how you were feeling about that. And so that I think it's a really good lesson for everybody is that when you have these feelings, express that this is how you feel. Listen, I'm like, I feel like I, I'm like, I really like to own this. Mm -hmm. I really want to take this, you know, and if you have a feeling other way, then that's fine. We can discuss it and then you can have the debate, but it at least expresses where you're coming from. And so it ha helps to really build the right solution for both people. So people don't become resentful in the process, I think. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think it, you know, to the point of the previous point and then building with this one, one of my deepest triggers is having someone feel like I'm not carrying my weight. Yeah. And so I had to check that too, right? Like in my head, it was like this person asked for help compounded by the fact that one of the people I respect the very most that I would never want to think I was shirking responsibility, it was caught in my head, right? right. In all the feelings versus like, oh, yeah, duh. This is clearly something she should take. Oh, I think that's a great point because it's the beginning of the funnel that leads to the debate. So that's a great yes. point. All right. The third part of the art of respectful debate, how to disagree without being contentious, is to don't let it get personal. <laughs> and of course, she gives me this one. Yeah. So debates tend to deteriorate, no surprise, when they become personal, which mm -hmm. is why we talked at length in the previous point about how important it is to know the origin of the debate topic. As soon as a person's character versus the situation or the work or whatever is being challenged, the respectful part of the debate goes out the window. Yes. At this point, hear us when we say the conversation needs to stop immediately. Yes. there We were at the point of diminishing returns, guys. So the next phase after this is to diffuse the situation, which usually means everybody goes to their separate corners. Everybody needs to cool down. We need to take some time to process how we landed in this situation. And overall, that energy really needs to come down before you can even think about reengaging in the debate. Mm -hmm. There are three likely conclusions as far as the next steps go. Number one, understand you may not get any further from the debate. So you may just need to say, look, we had the discussion to a point. We just need to call it. 
let's just decide right now and then you move forward. And this allows the situation to, in theory, be diffused without further harm. Now, if this is happening repetitively, et cetera, you might have a compounding problem, but that's one option. Number two, certain individuals rise as being more knowledgeable or credible, so you seek them out to finalize your decision, otherwise known as electing a referee Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the situation. If you can't get to it yourself, bring somebody else in as a third party who's going to be objective or like, you know, a higher level or someone equipped to make the decision on your behalf. Again, from a non-emotional, not subjective place to where you can get to the right objective solution. And the third is to let everybody cool down and then bring them back to the discussion with stricter rules for engagement. I think a lot of times when things get personal, it's because, like Anne said at the beginning, there isn't a process for this in place or expectations or rules of engagement, right? These things have not been outlined and so it becomes a little bit more of a free-for-all. And because we spend so much time and energy and all those things with our coworkers, you can understand how it can go to a personal place very quickly. Mm -hmm. But in all scenarios, you acknowledge the input of the group provide a very clear decision and objective rationale for that decision. And then you ask everybody to get on board, get in the boat, and row in the same direction. And then there, quite frankly, may be some that can't do that. And this is what I was starting to get at with my comment about if it's a compounding problem and it keeps happening. Then you may need to take like a bigger look at the person. Are they a good fit for your culture? Can they get on board with what you're saying? If the decision is made – can they stop talking against you or talking against the situation and do what needs to be done? We, like I said, we all spend a lot of time with the people we work with. We all have bad days. We are human. That is a trait of being human. But those repeat offenders are problematic, distracting. Over time, they can do a lot of very negative damage to the culture And honestly, the credibility of the organization as a whole for other employees and your perception out there in the world, all of those types of things. But to get back to the point of this one, which was all around not letting it get personal and really then what to do when it does happen, because we just have to recognize it does happen. And the faster you can get things back on track, the better it is for everybody involved. Yeah, I think the rules of engagement are really important there. And those need to be set and established as part of your culture of your team, your yep. business, your whatever your function, whatever that is for you. But as a leader, and I know we've talked to a lot of leaders, April and all of our coaching, and they're like, yep. when do I get involved? Yep. You know, you know, especially if people are having more of these debates. And I always give them the example of me and my girls. So I you guys know I have a 19-year-old and an almost 16-year-old, and they could have the most like treacherous arguments and they could get very personal very quickly which is when I step in I'm like okay this is this argument's done but if I go in too early what happens is that the anger they have for each other gets deflected to me (laughs) so then they have a common person Mm -hmm. to actually like put it onto and they bond over their mutual like disappointment or disgust for something I've done or something that I've said and then in like five minutes, they're fine. They're going to go off shopping or go for ice cream. And I'm sitting there going, bawling and upset <laughs> that, you know, why, why, how did this all happen, right? And I'm all upset and they're fine. It happens in work too. I mean, it, it happens all the time. 
where you try to intercede a little bit too early and you don't let people try to figure out on their own and then you become the common target for everybody. Sometimes that's a strategy <laughs> um, and it can work. But most of the time when you have folks like this, especially if, like you said, the repeat offenders and are constantly at each other and we know that this can be the case, you have to set a stage for them to work it out, right? You have to set the expectation that they need to work this out. Whatever that looks like, it's going to depend on the person, it's going to depend on the function, it's going to depend if it's internal, external, a lot of factors there. But you need to force them to work this out and be able to build that mutual respect because that's what everything is foundationally based on. Well, and I mean, this is a, a tough place to be, right? Which is probably why we focus on this so much in our conversations with leaders and our coaching and all of that is – you know, you hear Ann and I talk about vigilant leadership, right? The art of leading from afar. And this is part of that, letting people work out their situations, letting them get to conclusions. But the other side of vigilant leadership is setting them up for success. And so mm -hmm. I think that's why these rules of engagement are so important. And also that there is a standard set as far as the expectation goes on what are kind of the guardrails around the situations, right? So when I think about this, I think about when we write brand character and tone of voice, we write on both sides when it goes too far one way or another, Correct. right? And that's the same way I think you need to think about this. You have to give people enough tools that it works for them and then also let them know what is completely out of bounds. And I think then it makes it really easy to the other point we're making here when you have repeat offenders or you have, like Ann said, these two people that are like oil and water and they just can't get it together and get along. It becomes objective criteria for whether or not they're going to work out in the long term or not. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I think personally distracts and ruins culture faster than anything else is when you have two high performers that can't get along with each other. Yeah. And then the organization freaks out and they don't know what to do because they don't want to lose either party because they're the high performers and the rock stars and whatever. But then they sort of let things slide way more than they should. And that's when you get to these explosive situations and where things just completely go wrong. And at that point, in 99% of the cases, it's too late to save either one. So just another, and I'm speaking from experience yeah. here, of having to let people go where you're like, if we had addressed that earlier, could we have put better rules of engagement in place and also held those people to part of your evaluation is going to be whether you can learn to get along with that person versus letting it get to the point where it's like we're at a point of no return. Yes. And generally in those cases, there's a lot of ego involved. And so the one big way you get over all of that is through point four, mm -hmm. which is define and consistently reinforce the common goal. Look at me setting myself up for there success. You go. It's like I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So just like ensuring that there are objective resources, all the things I just spoke to, you also need to have a common goal for the team. We've talked on previous episodes about how to get to highly functioning teams. This is the key of that as well. You can't have highly functioning teams without a common goal that's bigger than any one person and what they can individually deliver. Right. If the goal is to align with any one person, discipline, function, et cetera, people start adopting that goal as their personal quest and then they forget about the role of the entire team within it. What this also does is help to reinforce the culture of the organization and the fact that we are in this together and it takes all of us to achieve that big common goal. 
when everyone is aligned and they understand it and they know their role in it, then the chances are far better that someone will seek another person's feedback as valid versus any sort of personal agenda. So this is one of the places where you can really eliminate that personal lens or aspect of things. In other words, like we talked about early on in this episode, people have a better chance of believing that the other person's coming from a good place. So if they're going to give you Mm -hmm. feedback, it's because we are all aligned under this common goal. And since we are all rowing in the same direction, the ultimate reason for the feedback is an objective piece of feedback in order to make the outcome better for everyone that is in it. It's worth repeating that only highly functioning teams can have respectful debate because at the heart of everything is respect and then trust. And if you need to know more about how to create these teams, we do have a podcast for that. I mentioned, you know, the highly functioning piece. We also have several episodes on teams at this point and how to make them work well together. So in the midst of debate, especially if you foresee things going off the rails, you need to remind people of that common goal. Again, make sure that you have professed it out there. You've been clear in the expectations and each person's role in it. And then you need to reorient or help reorient the discussion to weigh the merits of the ideas or challenges or point of views that are being brought to the forefront and what has the best chance to achieve that ultimate goal. Some sort of success criteria, rating system, Mm -hmm. something that gives everyone not only the common goal, but how we believe we're going to satisfy that big ask is a great way to bring objectivity to the conversation and again, get rid of anything personal, subjective, et cetera, et cetera. The more that you can profess the goal and then hand people tools. And I was always a big fan actually of when we would do evaluations of any sort of work at every single stage of where we were evaluating kind of like go, no go. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like have we completed this gate, like those types of things. I would bring whatever that criteria was in a sheet to the group and I would have every single person individually evaluate whatever was presented. And then collectively, we would have a conversation about people's reactions and what they sort of, quote unquote, rated to control the conversation and make sure that we were very much on track with the objectivity of what we were trying to do. In a creative environment, especially, this is really, really necessary so that people's personal feelings and their tie to the fact that they created this thing doesn't get in the way of what's being said. Or if someone doesn't like said creative person, they don't allow that to come into the conversation in the room. Yes. And this is a really, really important point because it's also what your reward system should be based upon as well, right? To your point that you were just saying with regards to a go, no go decision, but also how everybody gets rewarded because if people's rewards are intrinsically tied to the greater common goal, they'll be more apt to be more open to feedback and to incorporate other people's needs into their normal day-to-day activities. So I'll give you a couple examples about this. So I've talked a lot about my P&G Fabricare, especially tied uh, Super Bowl endeavors. And initially when you're doing a Super Bowl TV ad, the, there's one agency who's generally responsible for actually the development execution of that. If the goal was only to create a top TV ad, (laughs) what is the role of everybody else around it? Like mine, when I was in communications or the people who are doing the social or all these other folks who are supposed to be part of the team, what's our role in that? It's really hard to determine. 
But if you make the goal, if we want to be the most talked about brand of the Super Bowl, then all of a sudden, all the pieces start having to work together in order to create that because you can't be the most talked about brand if you're not orchestrating the communications around that and trying to create that comprehensive outreach that actually elevates everything, right? So that's like a nuance there. Another part that a lot of times becomes a contention is between sales and marketing, Mm -hmm. right? So if you're just saying, we want to just get this many customers converted, so to speak, that's a sales role, right? Yeah. Salespeople are, are all about converting their customers. But if you're saying, we want to generate more customers overall, that also becomes a marketing exercise because you have to generate awareness, you have to generate leads, you need to build them in, and then you have to start to, to nurture those leads. That becomes a bigger opportunity for everybody that everybody then needs to work together because sales can't convert the leads until you actually bring them in, right? So- just rethinking a little bit about how you set that goal can change the whole dynamic of the team because then they start realizing they need each other in order to be successful. And then on top of that, if the reward is tied to that bigger goal, then everybody realizes, hmm, I'm a piece of the pie. My piece might be great, but I need to make other people's pieces great too if I want to get my portion that I have been working very hard for. So that's just a couple of examples of how I've seen it in my P&G life, and actually what we've seen it through our clients, frankly, too, where they start to kind of get this contention and, and within their groups of like, why isn't everybody working together? Why is everybody arguing? Why are these people going rogue and not paying attention to what else is going over there? Why aren't they being more collaborative? That's usually a big word. The root of collaboration is a big common goal. You can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no reason to collaborate. Why would somebody collaborate if they don't need you, right? So those are just two examples I had. Well, and I'll riff a little bit off of that on the agency side and pick on my P&G friends a little bit here, which I love to do. But, <laughs> you know, you guys had the BAL model. Oh, God, um, I hated the BAL which model. We, which we had to work within, Could right? you want to explain a little bit what the BAL model and, is? Yeah, well, yes, I was going to go there. Okay, um, yeah. sorry. No, no, you're good. Fair, fair point. We have an acronym here, so we need to explain. So basically what would happen is – P&G would, at a certain point in time, and I, there's been many iterations of how they work with agencies or bring things internal, et cetera. At one phase of my career being on the agency side, the BAL model was huge. And what would happen there is they would basically group all of us agency folk together and they would put someone at the helm of managing all of the agencies. And they were meant to be a gate or a filter to bring collaborative collective work back to Proctor so that we were presenting together and working together and getting to the best work because we were all in it, you know, altruistically to be partners with each other. You can hear it in my voice. Guess what happened? Usually the person at the head was one of the biggest purse strings, which means they had the most inflated ego and they would have this power moment where they decided that they were going to push each of the rest of us down. And so what would end up happening is if the ideas weren't theirs or if they didn't understand the work that each other agency was brought in to do, then they would just kill things. And so we would get penalized on both sides. We get penalized by mm-hmm. – and, and usually in the agencies I was in, let me just clarify, we were never the leader. The leader was typically the one that was doing whatever the media was, yeah. right? Because you had to pay them the most because without the media budget, none of the stuff we were creating would have been seen by anyone, right? And so we got into this damned if we do, damned if we don't situation where we would present awesome work and it would get killed. 
And then we would get clobbered by the Proctor team saying we weren't creative enough. And it just became this like, oh, how do we win in this situation, right? And so I bring that up because in theory, actually, I will say I understand why that was brought forth. And I actually think it could have worked. It's just that it wasn't framed up with any of the things we're talking about today. It was just kind of laid upon us to figure out how to Mm -hmm. collaborate and bring the best work forward. And it was stated to us, like, you're all hired because you're experts in what you do. Now figure out how to bring that together and come and present it cohesively back to us. There was no level of accountability, expectation. What does that look like? What's our scorecard? How do we make sure this happens? And so it fell apart in execution. So there you go. And frankly, being on the other side of that model multiple times, rarely it was the structure established internally at PNG that was able to take responsibility for that sure. model, right? And yeah. be able to push back in appropriate ways when those things were happening. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of a hands-off approach in that standpoint too. And so if you don't have the right person who's leading it, facilitating it, making sure people are accountable to it, mm-hmm. it's just never going to work. So I think that's a really good point. When you're bailing these big common goals, you need to have somebody who's championing that big common goal and making sure that people are being held accountable to it. And it's generally not the person on the other side of that goal that is disproportionately responsible for delivering it <laughs> yes as well as getting compensated for it so mm-hmm. okay. yep that's all a of really that. good point all of that god yeah, i really did not like the bal model no at me either all. i mean it is like an immediate ptsd situation i go right into and i can't I have believe yeah when flashbacks. you said that like my my heart just started racing <laughs> um because i was uh, variably my one of the functions always got pushed down okay so i'm off my tide box for right now <laughs> All right, so our final segment is where we highlight companies or brands that may or may not be using their marketing smarts and may or may not have anything to do with today's episode. So if Avery wants to get in an argument with me about this one, you know, then we could respectfully debate it. <laughs> oh, we're tying it back that way. Got it. Okay. Oh, gosh. She's here all week. So all good. Right. So good. Okay. So this is one, actually, that I feel did not <laughs> leverage their marketing. It's not leveraging their marketing smarts very well. And that's Crunch Fitness, um, and that's the gym that I go to. And I won't state exactly which one it's at because, well, you probably it's probably a national campaign, so whatever. But they have these pop-up posters to sell their personal training. And the pop-up poster says, we'll help you reach any goal. And then it has a little superstar. It says, unless your goal is to steal the Mona Lisa. Oh, geez. you got to be kidding me. <laughs> that, that, I got chills in a very bad way. Yeah, I, I read it and then I reread it and I was like, I don't even understand what that means in the context of a gym. And now I, I'm going to go rewind to our brand character and tone of voice yeah. episode, April, because when I think about that and I think about the brand character of that gym and the tone of voice of the gym, this feels like somebody is trying to be very cheeky. Oh, yeah. Right. That's what I was going to say. Yep. But it's not aligned with the brand character It's whatsoever. not a cheeky brand. It's not a cheeky brand. It's kind of like it's supposed to be a brand, and they state this all over the gym, which is basically you're here to achieve whatever goal you want to achieve, and we're here to help support you, right? Mm-hmm. It's There's no funny-isms anywhere in that gym. and it So it is like it's totally out of place. Well, I think like, and I don't go there, but when like my experience of everything from like the brand mark to yes, the advertising and stuff, 
it's pretty actually serious and a little bit leans into intense. Not in a bad way, but it is like that whole, if you're here, you're here to work. And that's exactly the case. And and that's exactly what you would see when you go to the gym. Like it was the difference between when we had LA Fitness Mm. and I went over and I mean, this sounds extremely stereotypical and I'm so sorry, but I have to say in order to exemplify the point where you have like the, you know, moms and you know mm-hmm. who are there just to kind of like pedal around on the pre-court I think and that stuff is. like that right yeah their hair is still down they're their, their target's different yeah, it's just different yeah. and so then when you go I went to that gym because I'm like oh people are here to work out like sometimes it's kind of funny but it's like but they're here to work out that's the mentality of the gym so for that it's like I don't even get this so for me what I would say about that is that it's this is an example of trying to stretch too far mm-hmm. And not really honoring your brand fundamentals and then left with something of like, I don't think that makes me feel like I should go sign up for personal training right now at the Mm-mm. gym, right? So that's my marketing smarts moment. Yeah, they would have done far better to actually lean harder into what we talked about around being here to work and achieve your goals and it's a little bit serious and promoting it from a, if you're ready to get to the next level, but you aren't sure how to get there and you need, you know, individual, then here's what we have, right? Yeah. It was like actually a really good opportunity to lean right into that brand character. Exactly. And so I'm like, I was very confused. Weird. I was very confused. I'm like, this got approved? Who approved this? (laughs) So I even have a picture of it because I was like. Well, and the picture is off brand too, but I won't get into that because you guys can't see it. But yeah. Some of the fonts and stuff, I'm like, where did that come from? And there's no images on it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So anyway, I digress. So just to recap, the art of respectful debate, how to disagree without being contentious. First is to take responsibility for your current set of beliefs and assumptions. Use I statements, not you statements. Know when you're being objective or subjective. Either way is valid. You just need to acknowledge the origin so you know feelings are at play. Establish objective sources to help as references for discussions. Third, don't let it get personal. As soon as a person's character is being challenged, the respectful part of the debate ceases to exist. At this point, the conversation needs to be halted. Finally, define and consistently reinforce the common goal. This is critical to building highly functioning teams, which leads to establishing a cultural mindset that we are all in this together and it takes all of us to achieve this. Being a forthright woman can be challenging on a good day, which is why we offer individual and group coaching as well as group trainings and keynotes. Check out our website, forthright-women.com to learn more. If you find this podcast of value, please rate and review us and share with other women who could use a boost to become a forthright woman.